Praise the Lord today, and this is Pastor Adams, President and Founder of Truth Matters Ministries in Atlanta. And today we want to share and spend some time discussing a topic I believe the body of Christ needs to really wrap our arms around and unpack. Because this topic, it confronts each and every member of the body of Christ, and it is temptation, sin, and forgiveness. And we take time to share this today because there's so many people who have been dislodged, who have been shaken, their foundation, their spiritual rugs have been pulled up from their feet because maybe they have fallen into sin. Maybe someone who they esteemed highly like an evangelist or a pastor or some perceived spiritual leader has fallen into temptation, has committed sin, and have perhaps caused them to lose faith in God or the trustworthiness of their own salvation. And we want to spend a few minutes sharing this today and we're going to turn to the book of romans and if you turn to romans i want you to turn to that 14th verse in the seventh chapter and this is what paul said paul who was the chief apostle paul who was the apostle of their church paul who had a testimony of ascending into the third heaven paul who said he fought a good fight he kept the faith and he knew that there was a crown of life that was laid up for him that the lord had given him in other words heaven was his eternal home paul who wrote two-thirds of the new testament still found himself in a position to where he had a struggle with sin and temptation let's look at this 14th verse it says for we know that the law is spiritual but i am carnal sold under sin what did you say paul you were sold under sin what else did you say paul for what i am doing i do not understand for what i will to do that i do not practice but what i hate that's what i do if then i do what i will not do I agree with the law that it is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And I believe today in my listening audience, if every member of the body of Christ would be honest, and if you would be transparent, and and if you would be give real talk to yourself, you would have the same testimony that there is a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. Paul went on to say, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do it. But instead, the evil I will not do, that is what I practice. Now, if I do what I do, what I not do, It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And today we find that great leaders, one of the great apologists who recently passed away this summer, Ravi Zacharias, one of the foremost apologists and defenders of the Christian faith, he has been discovered to have fallen into sin, just like you and me. He has been discovered to have yielded to temptation just like you and me. And Ravi Zacharias, before he passed, he gave testimony and he preached about the struggle between sin, temptation, and forgiveness. And today we want to let Ravi Zacharias just speak to us himself as it relates to 
how we as members of the body of Christ, how we need to respond and what we need to do as it relates to preparing ourselves from sin to forgiveness to recovery. Give a few minutes to hear Ravi Zacharias. Amen. the message is this unique thing we call forgiveness. I dare you to look at any other worldview. I don't even need to name them. Look at any pantheistic worldview. Look at any other monotheistic worldview. And you will find out one way or the other you are weighed in the balances and as one of them will say your righteous deeds have to outweigh your unrighteous deeds or in the pantheistic worldview it is karma you pay you pay you pay one way or the other you pay the Christian faith is unique in giving you the joy and the beauty of forgiveness at one of the most exorbitant prices ever. The very Son of God says, I forgive you. I forgive you. You remember the famed Jim Baker, who was at the helm of PTL years ago and that empire fell so sadly? It was about six in the morning when I heard the news in the 80s and I was heading out to play a game of racquetball when I turned it on and heard that news. I pulled up on the side of the road. I said, this is going to change the landscape for evangelicalism for sure. And it did. When he was put into prison for all that he'd carried on, he was telling the story years ago at the Christian Booksellers Convention. I remember him standing near, near me at the next display of books and I told my wife I said I think that's Jim Baker he doesn't look a shadow of himself just very gaunt and thin he'd lost so much weight in prison and he tells the story in his book I was wrong he said one day while he was sloshing around the prison in his overalls cleaning the latter of the bathrooms and all of that the guard came and said to him there's a man here to see you he said I don't want to see anybody he said no you want to see this man he said no I don't want to see anybody he said I tell you you want to see this person I'm telling you, you better come. He said, all right, I'm going to come just as I'm like this, just as I am. I'm not going to change. All the water from the bathroom, all over his overalls and his gloves taken off. He said, I walked over to the lounge there where this guest was waiting. I was shocked to see it was Billy and Ruth Graham. And he said, Billy Graham was standing there. Billy's a pretty tall gentleman. He walked over towards... Jim was not that tall and he wrapped his arms around Jim Baker and held him so tight and Jim says in his testimony I could not stop my sobbing to be the most despised minister in the land at that time being embraced by the most admired minister in the land forgiveness is a huge burden falling off your shoulders like pilgrim comes to the hill and the first angel of dawn says thy sins be forgiven thee and the backpack of burden of sin falls off pilgrim the angel of daybreak puts a mark on his forehead and gives him the new robe you're a new creature 
the angel of dusk gives him a scroll to give him the map to be able to walk on in the journey. What an enormous change when you come to Calvary. The three shining ones greet you. Your sins are forgiven. You're given that new attire. You're given a roadmap with which to walk and navigate this journey. You see, maybe the simplest way I can cut to the point here. A few years ago, I was asked to give the address of the United Nations prayer breakfast. And of course, it's a very difficult setting. You're given about 18 minutes. It's at the crack of dawn and all worldviews represented in front of you. So you have to be very careful. So you have to navigate on a subject that they give you, which is something they're interested in. And you are, you are allowed in the, towards the end to say what your belief is and what you're talking about. So the subject I was given was navigating with absolutes in a relativistic world. I'm sure it's not easy to wake up to that, but they came. And so I talked about three absolute or four absolutes, which we look for evil. How do we define evil? Is there an ontic referent? Is there a way to define it? Justice. How do we define justice? What is just? I said, some of you have left your loved ones home behind and you're here. You love them. How do you define love? And some of you will blow it ethically and you'll ask your peers to forgive you. At what point is forgiveness legitimate? I said, these four issues you struggle with for, a, for an absolute evil, justice, love, and forgiveness. And they're all sitting there in riveted attention. But five minutes ago, I said, I want to tell you something. There is only one place in the world geographically I know where these four converged at one moment. And that is on a hill called Calvary. Where the evil of this world was hurled on to Jesus Christ. The justice of God was being effectuated here. The love of God being displayed through his son. And Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Embodied in that crucifixion moment is the very display of the absolutes of God himself provided for you and me as we navigate through these struggles of evil, justice, love and forgiveness. When that meeting was over, the ambassadors had lined up and one of them came up to me and shook my hand. He looked relatively young. I, I expected most of them would be sort of veteran uh, diplomats and so on. This man didn't look like he was more than his late thirties. And he looked at me and he said, Mr. Zacharias, I come from an atheistic country. And I am a lonely man. I miss my family. I didn't want to come here, but I obeyed my president and I am here today for the first time. I found out why I have come here. I came here to find God. But here's what I want you to point out to you, which is very critical now. While the problem may be symptomatically seen as moral, morality alone will not change it and will not solve it. Our problem is so deep that morality alone cannot change it. The fact is it needs the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. It goes beyond the moral to the deeply spiritual. We are in the need of a savior, a savior. And I put my links in like this. 
which I did in the most recent book after demonstrating each of the points. It's this, that the supreme ethic in this world is love. Ethicists grant you that, whether it's ordinary love or supererogatory love, where you, where somebody goes out of their way, like a well, healthy person running into traffic to pick up a helpless child who may have already been half hit, but the person doesn't even think in that supererogatory act, runs to rescue this baby, though a stranger, at the risk of his or her own life. Love is the supreme ethic. Where love is the supreme ethic, freedom has to be real. Where there is freedom, there will always be the possibility of sin and the actuality of sin. Love is a supreme ethic that must allow for freedom. Freedom makes sin possible. Where there is sin, there's a possibility of a savior. And where there's a savior, there is the hope for redemption. The gospel story is unique in its salvation narrative. There is no other worldview that brings you to a savior slash redeemer by the grace of God. Only the Judeo-Christian worldview points to that. And so when he says, you shall not test the Lord your God, our Lord goes to Gethsemane and on his knees, he's battling this out. He wanted the companionship of his disciples and never got it. They were so tired and fatigued, they couldn't stay up and pray. And finally, when they led him away and the whole story began to unfold, he had already prayed, if there is any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. The beauty of the gospel is on that cross. There was a book written, there was a book written some time ago by a leading preacher in the land, and I don't like to take hits at people, but I'm taking hit at a thought. And the book is called Your Best Life Now. So I read, I want to see what it is that people find so attractive in this speaking. You go through page after page after page, there's not a single mention of the cross. You cannot have your best life without the crucifixion of Jesus Christ providing for your redemption and your salvation. That's why the songwriter says, what language shall I borrow to thank you, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow thy pity without end or make me thine forever and should i fainting be lord let me never never outlive my love for thee O sacred head once wounded with grief and shame weighed down you and i are carriers of that cross and when you see the difference it makes i mentioned last night being in angola prison walking through death row, that pall of pain and going cell to cell and then speaking to them to the whole and three times. There's about eight or nine hundred are in a live audience and the rest have it piped into their rooms. Angola prison used to be the most deadly prison in America. It's in Louisiana. Chaplain told me that at one time 
When you walked in there, there were blood marks on the walls, blood marks on the ceiling, blood marks on the floor. When you checked into Angola as a prisoner, as I said, 85% of them on life without parole. When you checked in, you were given a knife to defend yourself. And this warden with the girth of a southern sheriff, Burl Kane, takes charge. And he says, I'm going to do it my way. A Bible in every cell. Bible studies every day. A seminary opened on the campus so that these young men who are never going to get out in these prisoners can become theologians and study the Word of God. Ninety were registered for the theology program studying to get a Master's of Divinity. And you know what? They knew they were never going to get out. And the chaplains of the gangs of thugs have now been replaced by gangs of pastors. It has become, it has become one of the safest prisons in America. The man told me, one of them told me, bring in the prettiest young lady you want and march her in front of the cells. You will not hear a profane word or a whistle or a cat call. He said, neither my staff nor the inmates are allowed to use profanity in this prison. Let's change them. This word has changed them. After I was at one of the meetings, I looked at a young man who led in worship and I said to him, can I ask you something? Are you here on life without parole? He said, yes, sir. I said, I don't want to sound mean. I'm just as a preacher trying to gauge emotions for something like this. How does it feel to know you're never going to get out of here? It's 20 miles from the nearest road. Do you know what he said? Mr. Zacharias, if you knew the man I was and knew why I was here, let me tell you, sir, I thank God that if this is what it took for me to find freedom and my savior, I am glad I am here and I will be here the rest of my life. I'm okay because of what I found. Pray for my parents who are outside and think they are free, but actually they're in bondage to sin themselves. No, we need the cross. Don't ever take a text devoid of the context that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. So the first one comes to the intellect, the second one comes to the will, the third one comes to the imagination. He says, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of this world if you will bow down and worship me. Why don't you bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. You know what? Not only is that a lie in the power to give everything, but it is a double lie. Even if you had all of the things of this world, you will never find true pleasure. Never. I've done a series of books on imaginary conversations between Jesus and the personalities. One of them is called Sense and Sensuality. Jesus talks to Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde was the quintessential hedonist, known for his dandyism and all of the carryings on that took him in and out of prison and so on.
He died in his 40s. I visited the place where he died. I visited the church where his funeral was held, which happened to be at the same place that Blaise Pascal's uh, jacket now hangs from uh, because of his testimony sewn in there, which describes his conversion. So in that same church, Pascal's funeral and uh, Wilde's funeral. And so in this imaginary conversation, I put Jesus, Pascal, and uh, Oscar Wilde in conversation. If you go to the grave of Oscar Wilde, and if you really want to think, I think what was going on inside his head, I think it is almost autobiographical, his book, uh, the, the Picture of Dorian Gray, and all the horrors of what sin can do to a person. This is from the pen of Oscar Wilde. It's Oscar Wilde in his Ballad of Reading Jail, who said, things are so dark in this prison for me, he said, only the blood of Christ is now strong enough to cleanse this heart of, heart of mine. That's wild. And yet Oscar Wilde, as he lay dying, he looks at his lover, Robbie Ross, and he asks the most incredible question as he lay dying. He said, Robbie, when you loved those boys, those little boys, did you love any one of them for their own sake? Robbie Ross is shocked. He says, no, I didn't. Oscar Wilde says, neither did I. Did you love them for their own sake? Why is a dying hedonist wanting a definition of love? He says, neither did I. Bring me a priest. I need my heart cleansed. If you go to his grave, do you know what verse he selected to put on his gravestone? It's a huge phoenix, a verse from the book of Job. A hedonist goes to Job to find his epitaph. Pleasure will always come at a cost. For the good pleasure, you pay for it before you enjoy it. For the wrong pleasure, you pay for it after you enjoy it. He couldn't give him the pleasure that he was offering. Going through the back door of the imagination, Jesus says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Why did Jesus go to worship rather than just attacking pleasure? You know, when uh, Tiger Woods fell into that sorry state in his life, which is so unfortunate for a great for a great golfer like that to have ended up in that situation. He was being quizzed by the media, and I think the most ironic question I've ever heard a, a journalist ask anybody was asked by this journalist of Tiger Woods. How could you lie to so many for so long? When a media person asks you that question, I think this is steeped with irony. How could you lie to so many for so long? Woods answered it the only way that I think was reasonable. You know what he said? It's because I first lied to myself. I don't know the man, but I'd like to ask him, what did you lie to yourself? Did you lie that you'd never get caught? A lot of people tell that lie. Or did you lie thinking what you did is wherein lay your happiness? Where you were pursuing, did you think that's where you were gonna find happiness? 
Did you find out the lie that that's not the case? God sets up our boundaries for our own benefit. And so I say to you, Jesus responded saying, worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The mind and the hands. Archbishop William Temple defines worship in these these words. Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It's the quickening of conscience by his holiness, nourishment of mind by his truth, purifying of imagination by his beauty, opening of the heart to his love and submission of will to his purpose. All this gathered up in adoration is the greatest expression of which we are capable. Okay, quickening of conscience by his holiness, mind by his truth, imagination by his beauty, heart to his love and will to his purpose. All this gathered together. You see, the Greeks had the right question. How do you find unity in diversity? How did they answer it? By opening up universities. That's exactly where the university gets its etymological roots. Unity in diversity. That's why we started universities. Have you seen an average university student has found unity in diversity? They're graduating out of pluriversities. It took the Hebrews to tell us, you will never find unity and diversity until you find you worship the living God who brings together all of your proclivities within you and brings it into the confluence of worship. Once worship is known and experienced, that becomes a sacred ground from which all other decisions are made. Once worship is experienced and understood, that becomes a sacred ground from which all other decisions are made. So for you and I as Christians, our prior commitment is to the sacredness of life. From that decisions are made in punctiliar moments and so on and so forth. That's why Jesus was able to answer with the text given to him by presenting the context to him, be gone. You shall worship the Lord your God alone, and him only shall you serve. One of the most beautiful privileges you and I have is of worship. And so we hear a riveting testimony. We are enthralled by the strains of music. We sing, we give, we laugh, we remember, we mourn. All of these things are born out of the sacred soil of our worship of the living God. Him only shall you serve. How do I apply this? And with that, I close. One of my favorite preachers came out of Toronto, an Englishman by the name of Arthur Leonard Griffith, passed away some years ago, became the rector at the famed St. Paul's Cathedral in Toronto, came from London. Here's what he says in one of his books, God's time and ours, talking about temptation, and I close with this. Satan tempts us at the point of our physical needs, not that we might gratify them to excess, but that we might think of nothing else and gratify them at the expense of our usefulness in this world. Satan tempts us at the point of our ambitions, not that we might engage in positive evil but simply accept the fact of evil. Learn to live with it 
come to terms with it and maintain a discreet silence in the presence of it. Satan tempts us at the point of our religion, not that we might disbelieve in God, but that we might demand certainty of God, that kind of certainty which leaves nothing to faith, nothing to God himself. These are the moral struggles that have reality for people such as we are. The subtle temptation to renounce our duty in favor of what is attractive, that insidious allurement to a kind of half goodness, which is the essence of everything bad and which is more productive of suffering and hatred and war and misery in the world than all the designs of wicked and greedy men combined. See, it's not the crassness of a million dollar proposition that we can all see through. It's this kind of ambiguity that we need to watch out for, a kind of a half goodness that leads to all kinds of decisions that gradually scar the soul. And you know, what happened was not right. I look at my Lord Jesus, and I look at our day-to-day -day challenges of all that tempts us. And I think what Billy Graham said is haunting. He said, every day I've prayed one prayer. Lord, let me not today destroy in my life what you have taken all these decades to pour in with your grace and your mercy. Remember, every day is a fresh opportunity and you will be stalked. Don't just learn the scriptures by text. Learn the context and learn the supreme calling that Christ gives to you and me to worship the Lord our God.